The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, surely, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of a tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I, surely, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your lives. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Good morning, Sacred City. It is, uh, I'm just going to say it's super good. It's just super good to be here. 
Um, I could be the only one, but I am uh, thoroughly enjoying our studying the book of Genesis with you. Um, My name is Justin, and I want to uh, just jump right in and get going this morning. Father, first off, I want to just praise your goodness and and glorify your name for being here this morning. Um, My heart has been moved to worship you. Um, Just the, the simplicity of the worship set this morning, it just, man, it just moved, it just moves my heart, Father. I'm reminded of my inherent sinfulness and wickedness, and I'm reminded of your graciousness and your goodness in covering our, our sins, our mistakes, our failures. I ask that um, a divine awareness of your presence would be here. I ask that you would literally think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords, that you would Um, listen through their ears that you would allow us not to be deceived today, that you would allow us to stand firm on the truth, to know the truth. Jesus said we would know the truth and this truth would set us free. I pray that we would cling to the truth and we would reject deception. We would reject the lies of the enemy. Father, I ask that you would give me clarity this morning. And I ask above all that the power of the gospel would bring many to salvation you would further us in the gospel today. In Jesus' name, this is all for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we got a lot to cover, so hopefully mama packed some snacks today, okay? If you're hypoglycemic, I'm sorry. Uh, Let me see that, I'm gonna set this chapter up for you, okay? Here we go. So far, we've seen that God has created everything good. He forms a perfect paradise, And then he places, as a gracious heavenly father, he places man inside this paradise. Everything is golden up until this point. But remember, this is not the exact um, chronology, is that right, of creation. Okay? That is not the purpose of Genesis. Genesis was written by Moses at the tail end of the Exodus... And his purpose was to teach them about God and the covenant. So one thing that Moses leaves out here, but other biblical writers fill us in on, is the creation of our enemy and Adam and Eve's enemy, Satan. Satan was um, a beautiful angel named Lucifer, which translated from Latin means light bringer or shining star. He was outstanding in his appearance But instead of, now listen to this, ladies, instead of recognizing that all of his beauty was a gift from his creator, he rose up in pride. He chose to own his beauty. He chose to let his beauty define him instead of his gracious father, a gracious God who gave it to him. He took it as his own and he rose up in rebellion and pride. Lucifer began to covet God's power God's throne, and he desired it for himself. Lucifer then plotted and executed a rebellion where one-third of all angels in heaven rebelled against their creator God and rose up against him in war. And as Jesus referenced in the Gospels, he saw Satan fall like lightning, like the shining star. He saw him fall from heaven like lightning. He was sent to earth to, wait his, to await his final punishment. Okay? So this has all happened already in the story. Moses doesn't tell us about it because that's not Moses' intent. 
Okay, Moses is given the origin of the human race. He's, given, he's trying to give the origin of the covenant. He's trying to remind the Israelites as they're being led out of Egypt, Egyptian slavery, that the same God who created everything is the same God who made these promises to you. He's the same God who's leading you out of your slavery. All right? So then other biblical writers inform us that indeed Satan was created first. Angels were created first, and then after the judgment, after they rebelled, so the first sin was not done by man, the first sin was actually done by a created angel, Lucifer. He gets one-third of the angels in, boom, he gets cast out of, of heaven, sent to the earth to wait final punishment. We see that in the book of Revelation where one day he will be thrown into the lake of fire. All right, He'll be judged forever. So this, one-third of all angels, now becomes what we know as demons or evil spirits. Um, unlike what you see on uh, A&E and some of these uh, shows that you, they watch on tele- you, you watch on TV about supernatural, all spirits are not good spirits. All things should not be communed with or messed with. There is an, an angelic good spirits and there are evil spirits or demons. So all of that has already happened. And we see Satan now We call him Lucifer, we call him Satan, we call him the devil. Uh, Basically, it's all translated, depends on which language you translate from, Latin or Hebrew or Greek. He's got a few different names. And now we see Satan take the form, this is important, he takes the form of a snake and he begins to sneak into God's good garden. So God has the whole earth and on this earth he creates a garden, one It's Eden, one beautiful spot on this earth where everything is perfect. And Satan is already on the earth. And now Satan takes the form of a snake and he creeps his way into the garden. If you remember, God has just, we saw this last week, God has just given Adam and Eve their first job, the job of subduing creation and tending the garden. That included driving out snakes. So we're going to start in chapter 3. It's a little prequel. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to follow along with us because that's how we do things. I don't just jump. I will jump a little bit, but I don't jump all over the place. I want you to follow right along with us. If you don't have a Bible, there's some sitting right there on the stool for you. You can pull up. You can pull up our liturgy on version, the Bible app on your phone. Just search Live Events, Sacred City Church, and you can pull it up right there. It's going to be really good for you to follow along here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay? This, the serpent, is Satan. The Old Testament Hebrew refers to him as Satan. The New Testament Greek calls him the devil. Revelation 12.9 and Revelation 22 both say that Satan is a serpent. Satan is like a great dragon. Uh, Revelation tells us the great dragon will be thrown into the lake of fire. All right? So this is Satan. Now, first things I want you to notice. We're going to go really fast today. Um, it's not, maybe, it won't feel like, maybe it will feel like we're going really fast, but this, we've got a lot to cover, okay? This is Satan. When, when he's talking about the serpent here, he's talking about Satan. And, and the text shows us two things that we've got to see right away. The text immediately tells us something about our enemy and Adam and Eve's original enemy. He is, in our translation, it says he is more crafty. Other translations say he's shrewd. Okay, this is going to be really encouraging for us today. Number one is this. Satan is smarter than us. Satan is smarter than Adam and Eve. He's more crafty. He's shrewd. He's a deceiver. 
if we think that somehow we have an upper hand on Satan, we will soon come to our demise. The second thing about this, this goes right along with the first one, is he is well-practiced at deception. He is well-practiced at it. He has been doing it from the beginning. He's got a lot of practice, so he's really, really good at it. And he learns from his practice. Jesus said in John 8, that there is no truth in him. There is no truth in Satan. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar. And Jesus says this, he's the father of all lies. Satan is the father of all lies. Where do all lies stem from? Satan, our enemy, the serpent that we see in the story. So I want you to be aware of this this morning. This is kind of like a scouting, right away we're going to start off, it's kind of like a scouting report on our enemy. He's incredibly intelligent, he's incredibly smart, I mean he was a beautiful angel, he's got a, had a lot going for him, and now he's had a lot of practice at deceiving people. We should not think that he's just ignorant and that he's, he's not aware of our weaknesses and he's not aware of ways and very subtle ways to get into our life and to deceive us. That's what he wants to do. He's the father of all lies. He is the father of all deception. And he desires nothing, the Bible says, but to steal, kill, and destroy from us. He promises a lot and he only delivers death. That is this enemy. But he slithers in like a harmless serpent. Now, this is really important for us as 21st century Americans. You know, we're educated, we've been to college, and it's really important for us to hear this this morning. See, God only does what is good, right, and perfect. But he has an enemy. That enemy is Satan. Satan is not God's equal. He's not the yin to God's yang. Satan is a created being who rebelled and is still, listen to this, he's still under the ultimate control of our sovereign God. Satan is not God's equal or or co-equal. They're not like, you know, two opposing forces here that have equal power. Satan is a created being. He's under God. He is not comparable in any ways to God. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not in control of all things. God is ultimately still in control of Satan. I like to say, he has Satan on a short leash. But we need to realize that the world we live in today is a battle zone. We're in the midst of a spiritual war. So here we have God's enemy sneaking into God's beautiful garden, and he approaches Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent, and he says this. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say all of this goodness? You can't eat any of it? Well, Sacred City, is that what he said? No. Good. I love my Sacred City theologians in here this morning. He didn't. God said the exact opposite of that. He said, you can eat them all except for the one that will kill you. Don't eat that one. Can we handle that one rule? Don't kill yourself. It's like leaving the teenagers at home, right? All right, one rule. Just don't kill yourself or your siblings, okay? The one rule, right? So right now, listen, this is what it's showing us. Right now we see that Satan is cynical. Hmm. Hmm. 
Did God really say that? I can just hear the sarcasm. Really? 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 Do you hear the sarcasm? Do you hear the cynicism? Do you hear the skepticism? See, Satan, he, he's, a, he's great at taking God's word and just, uh, just twisting it just enough. Just tipping it just enough. Just lacing it with just a little bit of doubt, a little bit of, really? That's what Satan's really, really good at. So, I don't even know if I want to go there right now. I probably don't have time. Some of this gets weaved into us. It's easy with, see, I love this. The, I just loved the worship set this morning. I, I loved every bit of it. I love the nuance. I love the, it's all dark and there's just the red in the background and we're talking about sin and we're talking about the fall from grace of all humanity today. And it's not about the worshipers up here. You can't even see their face. It's about worshiping the king. It's about blood because we're going to find out about that in a little bit. I just love the nuance of it. But what happens with it, when we live in a world that's fallen from grace and we live in a world where sin is really prevalent and it's really evident, people want to do two things. They want to do like we talked about last week. They want to be really spiritual and act like it doesn't exist. I want you to person tell me because they're a Christian, they could never be in a car accident. I went, really? I wish Paul would have known that because he was shipwrecked like a lot. He would, I wouldn't even need insurance. That could save me a lot of money, right? They live in la-la land and they think God protects them from everything and they think that they're just absent from the, from the flesh and they're just, I just said last week, I just said they're kooky, okay? And then, but then there's, there's this other side because the, the, the sin is really here and it's sometimes hard to see the kingdom of God at work and sometimes it's hard to see how God breaks in and gives us grace and gives us moments where we can glimpse him. And this morning I felt was a, a true a, a moment where I could feel the presence of God and I'm thankful for that. But, but instead of working hard to see God at work, what we tend to do, the easy thing to do, we just get cynical. Hmm. I'll check out this church, but that preacher, he's probably just in it for the money. Hmm. Preaching the word, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. I'll, I'll, faith and repentance? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe. God's good? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe. Right? We just get to... Cynicism just... It just laces everything. We can never have true joy because we're like, it ain't going to last. Well, yeah, it ain't going to last, but you can enjoy the joy right now. Because I, lo- I, I can't remember it right now, but the last one of the last verses of, of one of those songs, when he comes again... When Christ comes back and I get to sing, hallelujah, what a savior. What's it going to be like then when cynicism is gone and there is no joy mixed with sorrow and sin? But there is coming a day where there will be no cynicism because there will be no presence of sin anymore. But it's easy right now to not look for the joy, not look for the kingdom, not look for the gospel at work, but to see everything laced with cynicism. And I'm going to tell you, that's how Satan looks at things. Satan knows the scripture better than all of us. Satan actually knows God better than all of us. And Satan still looks at the gracious, loving God going, he's holding out. I think I could be him. I could do his job. You see how good looking I am? I'm like a shining star. The original American Idol. 
And he says, I could do it myself. Everything laced with cynicism. I didn't mean to go there, but I did. Okay, so God, he takes God's word and he twists them. Hebrews and Ephesians tell us this. It tells us that God's word, I'm going to, Tyler, could you just turn the air on just a little bit? Because if I'm the only one, I'm getting hot, but it's enough. I'm hot. Um, Hebrews and Ephesians tells us that God's word is a sword. Now listen to this. It's a sword that is meant to be used to fight off Satan's attack, to fight off the enemy. The sword, the word of God is a sword meant to push back the enemy. It's a great weapon that we're supposed to know and to push back the lies of the enemy. One of my favorite scenes, why do I just keep doing this? But one of my favorite scenes is from the Lord of the Rings. Right? I, it just keeps coming to me. Right? The king is sitting there and he's weak and he's been possessed by Satan, right? Literally, he's been like, he's been possessed by an evil spirit and he's weak. And, and Gandalf comes in and one of the, Gandalf's lines, first he draws Saruman like uh, something from a wound. He draws him like poison from a wound, he says. And I just love that. And then he says this, your hands would know their own old strength again, my friend, if they gripped the hilt of your sword. That's what the word of God is meant to do for us. We know our strength. We, we get new strength when we learn our sword, when we learn our weapon. We can fight back and push back the enemy with it. That's why we see in the Gospels, when Jesus is attacked and he's attempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus responds every single time with the word of God. Jesus quotes the Bible to Satan and he fights back against temptation. So here in Genesis 3, we see Satan trying to twist God's word to deceive Adam and Eve. See, Satan knows God's word better than we do. That's, is that scary? That, that should be a little scary to us. That's why the Bible, listen, that's why the Bible is full of admonitions to, to study and show ourselves approved, rightly able to divide the word of God. We are meant to know it. We are meant to memorize it. And we're meant to, listen, surround ourselves with good Bible teachers so that we will not be deceived. Now, all of us are like, I ain't going to be deceived. I'm educated. I'm educated. I'm fine. I ain't going to be deceived. Now, it's, it's way more subtle than that. False teachers don't just get up here and go, okay, here's, what, here's the deal. Jesus, yeah, he's not the son of God. I am. Yeah, I don't talk to my wife about that, but it's true. Okay, I'm the son of God. Very rarely do false teachers do that. False teachers just get in and they just start messing with some crucial doctrines and you don't even realize it. And most of the time, there's stuff that we don't like anyways. There's stuff about the Bible that we don't like, we have a problem with. So they get in there and they start messing with these crucial doctrines and at first we don't even get it. At first we don't, yeah, you know what? I never liked that about the Bible. I didn't like that stuff anyways. And then all of a sudden, down the road, we're deceived and our life and the wheels come off our life. Now, I want you to see the perfect storm that's developing here in Genesis 3. You've got people who can be deceived. Do you hear that? The, op the possibility for people to be deceived is already here. Adam and Eve, perfect garden. Everything is money. But there's still the ability for them to be deceived. There's still an ability that I can either hear God's word and listen and believe it and obey, or I can listen to something else and I can choose to be deceived. So you've got people that can be deceived, all right? They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. And you've got God. Now listen, you've got God. So we've got people who can be deceived. 
We've got God, who's the source of all truth, and he's the best teacher that has ever existed. And now we've got Satan. The most effective false teacher on the planet. You see this perfect storm developing? People can be deceived. We got God, a great teacher, the best teacher, but we got Satan, the best false teacher. And now we're all mingling. Perfect storm is coming. And the scary thing for us, Scripture tells us that we are now born with itching ears that want to be deceived. See, we aren't like Adam and Eve who were created clean and perfect. We were born in sin with sin running through our veins. So we want, listen, we want our own glory more than we want God's. That's a truth that if you haven't grasped yet, you don't know the depth of your salvation or the depth of your sin. Born sinners, we crave our own glory and not God's glory. So we're born with these itching ears. Paul says in 2 Timothy that what these itching ears want to do, what this inborn sin wants to do, is it wants to gather together preachers who will tell us what we want to hear to satisfy our itching ears. What do we want people to tell us? What do, let's just think about this. What do we want preachers and teachers to tell us? I'll tell you what we want us, as Americans, this is what we want them to tell us. We want, to te- we want them to tell us how to fix our marriages. We want them to tell us, how do I raise successful kids? We want preachers to tell us, how do I make a lot of money? God's way. Just throw that in there. We want to know, how do I alleviate the stress of my life and live a happy life? Listen, it's subtle. Everybody's like, a lot of you in here are like, yeah, that's kind of why I'm here. Listen, that's not the point. That's not the point. That's our itching ears. I could, Oprah could do those things for you. She's tried, right? Dr. Phil can do those things for you. Jesus Christ has done something far deeper, far more meaningful, far more satisfying. We don't need to hear five steps to get rich and three steps to deceive your wife into getting more sex. We don't need those things, right? We don't need those things. They write books on those things. We need to know how desperate we are for a Savior and how all-satisfying Christ is. We need to know it's not about us. It's not about what I want. It's about who God is, what He's done. What I need is more of Him. And you know what? You know what? Here, here's the deal. I, I, I said that, and I almost want to go back on that. Because if you are in Christ, you don't need more of Him. You know what it's like? It's like me running around the house asking my wife, have you seen my sunglasses? I got to go. I'm late for a meeting. Have you seen, where are my sunglasses? And she looks and she's like, they're on your head. I think Christians are like that today. They're running around a church. I think I need more of Jesus. I think I need more of the Holy Spirit. I think I need to, how do I fix my marriage? How do I do this? How do I do that? And Peter tell, or it tells us in first Peter that you have everything you need for life and godliness. You already have Christ in you, the hope of glory. You're running around looking for something that's on your head. You already got it. 
There's nothing more to get. You have Christ. You need to understand him more, maybe. You need to experience that union more, maybe. But it's already here. It's already in you. He's already done the work. It is finished. Oh, that's good. Even just for me, I'd take that. That's good. <clears throat> so listen, basically, we want... I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to I'm gonna prove it to you. Let's go to Romans real quick. Let's go to Romans real quick. Romans 16. Romans 16, verses 17. The Apostle Paul, this is what he says. This is uh, roughly 2,000 years ago. He says this. I appeal to you, brothers. Verse 17. Chapter 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Listen to this. What do you do with false teachers? Avoid them. Listen to me. I'm just going to do this. I probably shouldn't. Turn TBN off. Turn it off. Turn it off. You might be able to find a good preacher on there, but the majority of them are not. They're preaching their own glory. How to get... There's, I, mean, I just have a problem with sitting in a gold chair that's this big. When Jesus says, die to yourself and wash feet. I have a problem with that. We all should have a problem with that. Just turn it off. Well, but he's really good at saying this. I don't care if he's really good at saying that. He's preaching a false gospel. It's like listen, turning on Oprah and saying, well, I'm just gonna, I'm, I might get something out of this. Tell me something, Oprah. Go to God's word. Avoid those teachers. Now listen to this. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So I'm just going to show you this. This is a perfect storm, more so for us than it was for Adam and Eve. Jesus said our heart is desperately wicked. This is, guys, we should be aware of this. Listen, we're born with itching ears. We're born with deceitful hearts. There's preachers out there, many men, who want to preach for false motives, who want to preach to make money, who want to preach to gain crowds, who want to tell you what you want to hear so your butts are in the seat and the tithes are coming in and they have that desire. And Satan wants to deceive all of us. This is a perfect storm. We need the truth of the living God. We need to know God's word. We need the Holy Spirit that would lead us into all truth. And we need to stay away from false teachers. Just stay away. We can pray for them, but we need to stay away. So, basically, we want preachers who tell us how to get stuff from God. Please hear this today. We want preachers to tell us how to get stuff from God. We want God's goods, but we don't want God himself. Most of the time, we could care less about God. As long as he gives me a happy family, I really don't care. You could call him Buddha. As long as he fixes my wife, I don't care. As long as he pays these bills... You could call him Buddha. You could call him whatever. Just fix it, God. So many times we come to him for his goods and not for himself. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, nobody goes to heaven who wanted heaven more than they wanted God. So what does Satan do? Genesis 3. 
Get back there. Genesis 3, Satan does this. Oh, that little scheming mother. Here's what he does. Did God actually say to you, you shall not eat any of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the... Hey, come on, girl. She's answering. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Is that what God said? Huh? No, that's not what God said. Did God say she can't touch the fruit? No. God said, don't eat it. You eat it, you die. That tree will kill you. Didn't say you couldn't touch it. But listen, you see how cleverly Satan got in there? Did God say, really, you can't eat none of these? She said, no, no, we can eat all of them, but just that one, and we can't even touch that one. Whoa, she just added a rule. She just added something to the word of God. See how cleverly deception works. And then let's keep reading. Satan, but God, uh, unless you do that. But the serpent, so Satan said to the woman... You won't die. You will not surely die. Uh, Listen to this. The first doctrine to ever be denied is the doctrine of the judgment of God. The first doctrine Satan denies is the judgment of God. You won't die. Oh my goodness. Sin is not that big a deal. Death, overreaction. God's not really like holy, like really expects you not to like disobey him. He's kind of like your grandma. You know, when you're a kid, your grandma, she lets you get away with everything that your parents won't. She just stuffs you full of candy. I can't eat this much candy. It don't matter because you're happy when you're with grandma. Here's more candy. God is not like grandma and grandpa. God is absolute holy. Now listen, this same thing happens today. And you, you, you need to have ears that hear this. So if you are listening to preachers and you are listening to teachers and you are reading books and they start saying stuff like God is not a God of wrath. God is not a God of judgment. We all like, yes, I don't want a God of wrath anyways. I don't like wrath and I don't like judgment and I like rainbows and sunshine. So give me that God. That is a lie from Satan. God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And you'll never know the goodness of God until you've experienced and really know the judgment and the wrath of God. Why? Because I've been saved from so much. I deserve death and hell, and I've been saved from it. He's diverted it and all the punishment that he's meant to crush me and wipe me off the face of the planet for disobeying him. That was diverted and he wiped Christ off the face of the planet for me. The wrath that was meant for me, that wrath landed on Jesus. And the father, like we sang today, the father turned his face away. And the Trinity for the first moment in all eternity felt a disconnect. Jesus experienced the the pushing away, the the drawing away of the Father so that I could be drawn in. If you don't know wrath, you don't know love. The same thing happens today. People think they don't even get grace. If God is gracious, he can't be wrathful. The only way he can be gracious is if he's wrathful. 
I don't want a judge to go, ah, I don't really feel like being just today. You rape somebody? You're lucky. It's Tuesday. Go on through. No big deal. Tuesday's my grace Tuesday. Grace happens when we deserve the punishment. But the punishment we deserve has been placed on Christ. God is still just as wrathful as he ever has been. But now his wrath lands on Christ if you're in Christ. Thank God. Well, Romans tells us there's a passive wrath of God. Romans tells us that now, if we continue in our rebellion and we continue in our unbelief and we continue in our unrepentance, God's wrath is like this. Go ahead. You want to rebel? You'll get what rebellion gets. And he turns them over. He turns them over to their unbelief and their sin. And this, I can't go there. Okay, here's the basic question. Here is the only question that Adam and Eve really needed to answer. And here, here, and it's the same question that all of us struggle with on a daily basis. Here it is. Will I, in this moment, believe God or not? Doesn't matter what happened in the past. Doesn't matter I'm tomorrow. I'm a, after this weekend. Will I, in this moment, believe God or not? Will I trust what I think? Will I trust what I feel? Or will I trust in what God has said? Eve, unfortunately, right here, she believes her eyes. She saw that the tree was good. It was a delight to the eyes and she desired it. She desired goodness, wisdom, and beauty separate from God. She wanted the things of God without God himself. And listen, I want you to know this. The fruit here is not really the point. People always want to ask me weird questions. Was it an apple or an orange or maybe a mango? <laughs> the fruit is not the point. Moses is telling us. This is what Moses is telling us. The fruit was sexy, okay? The fruit looked good. It was hot, all right? It could be a sports car or a supermodel or a mango. I don't know, but it, it doesn't matter. What matters is this. Can you, and this is big, can you trust God when you don't get it? Listen to that. If you're a thinker like me. Okay, two types of people. Thinkers, feelers. God's speaking to both of you here. He says that the desires of her heart, feeler, or it looked really good, it seemed like it was good, thinker. Can you trust God's word more than you trust your thinking and more than you trust your feeling? Mm-hmm. See, Eve, in this moment, Eve has more faith in her eyes more faith in her desires, more faith in her understanding than she does in God's word. It looks so good. How could it be wrong? It feels so right. It seems so true. Aren't we the same way? God lays some pretty clear rules out for us. He says, don't have sexual relations outside of marriage. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't gossip. Don't get drunk. And we say, hmm... God, you're lame. You're puritanical. You're a huge, boring buzzkill. You obviously are just grumpy and you need a drink or 10 or 100. Isn't that how we see God most of the time? He doesn't really know. It looks so good. Look at the apple. Look at the, oh, it looks so good. It feels so right. I know it's good. He's withholding. This is one of Satan's go-to strategies. 
he says to Adam and Eve and to us, if God says no, it's because he's mean and he's holding out on you. And we listen to the enemy and not to God. We put more faith in Satan's lies than we do in God's word. And listen, we're about to find out the only thing God was withholding from them was death. God's only rule was don't kill yourself. Oh, crap, Dad, why not? You tyrannical overlord, you don't let me do anything fun. I want to jump out of the top of the tree and land on my head. That's the only rule. Don't kill yourself. And we look at him and Adam and Eve look at him like you're holding out. I know killing myself will be fun. (laughs) Sin is suicide. It's physical and spiritual suicide. Eve takes the fruit and she eats and Adam watches. Adam just stands there. Is this you, men? I'm up in everybody's business today. You just stand off to the side while your wife makes all the spiritual decisions in the family. Whatever, honey. Move. The game's on. Roll tide. You were created by God. That's in the text. You were created by God. To lead your wife and family. You're the, listen, you were created, men, you were created by God to lead your wife and family. You are the leader. She is the helper. Women, listen to last week's sermon if you think it's derogatory. Okay, it's not. Helpers use, God calls himself our helper. This is the number one problem in the church, in the family, and in our society today. Men sit back, they don't lead, they don't love, they don't fight off the serpent, they don't draw their swords, they don't study the Bible, they're unresponsive, they're apathetic, they're disengaged from God. Men, you are meant to know God intimately, to know his word inside and out, and to fight back the enemy of our souls and the enemy of our family, to fight him back and serve God's church and serve your families with passion. You were made for it. You were created for it. The first thing Satan should have done, or, or Adam should have done, was pull his sword and chop off the head of the serpent. Hmm, talking snake, something's off here. (laughs) Instead, he's like, hmm, that's cool, right? It's that YouTube video that just sucks you in. Listen, men, you are meant to be dragon slayers. I know the church has told you that you're meant to lead Bible studies and you're meant to go on men's retreat and sit around and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And none of us want to do it. None of us want to do it. I get that. I don't either. Seriously. Sit around, talk about our feelings, right? We don't want to do it. We're meant to be dragon slayers. Fighting back Satan with the word of God and showing your boys what a man after God's own heart looks like. See, here Satan is deceived by a snake, or, or Eve is deceived by a snake. She's led away by a stinking snake that he should have had dominion over. It's under him. 
We have the reversal of created order already. Today, many women... Listen, I like this. A snake has dominion over him. A snake is controlling him. Today, it's not so much a snake. It's usually a pig. Well, technically, it's a pig skin. You can name the entire starting line to your favorite college football team, but you only know three Bible verses, and one of those is Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Men, Sports are too small of a God for you and your kids to worship. Sports are a false God that only rewards the gifted. And here's the truth of it. You can teach your kid about God all you want. You can quote the Bible and take them to church every Sunday, but your kids will worship and love what you worship and love. Where's your heart? If you get more passionate and happy on Friday nights under the lights, they're going to see that And that's where they worship. That's where they will worship. What's the biggest temple in the United States? The Alabama Crimson Tide played there last night. Dallas Cowboy Stadium. Where thousands upon thousands go to worship every weekend. You want to see worship? It looks like pagan revelry. 400 pound dudes ripping their shirt off, painting their chest, singing going nuts. It's worship. Paying hundreds of thousands thousands of dollars to go worship there. They're giving their offering. They're giving their time. They're giving their heart. They're giving their devotion to the God of football. If you get more passionate and happy on Friday nights under the lights, man, they're going to see that. They don't need God. Listen to your kids, what they'll learn. They don't need God. All I really need is to be great at sports. If I'm great at sports, then I get attention. Then I get get people's praise. That's what I really want. I want people to love me. I want people to worship me. I want my glory. So who needs God? I want sports. I want to be great at sports. Or this is how the Christians do it. Just as bad. They're going to try to use God to help them get what they really want. And that's the admiration of men and being great at sports. It always just... We pray before sports, right? I play football. I wrestled in college. We do that. But it's just, it's funny, right? What are we doing when we're praying before sports? I really hope there's more people praying on my team than that team. Because you know the guys over there are praying the same thing. Let me crush them, God. Let me break their backs, right? Like that's what's being prayed on both sides. And God's like, I'm not really like that. God's flipping a coin in heaven. Hmm. Right? Or just weighing the prayers of which team. Yeah. Halftime's really going to decide this. Who's going to come to me at halftime? <laughs> Men, it's too small. Sports is too small. Sports, sports is too little. Sports can't be your God. You can love it. You can be passionate about it. But you better check your heart if you're more passionate about sports than you are about God. Because if you are, you've been deceived and you're not seeing things clearly. So just so nobody walks out of here today um, without me picking on them, I'm just going to go ahead and hit the ladies now. Uh, But ladies, we, we do. We see a problem here as well. Adam doesn't step up, so Eve does. Hmm. I wonder if that situation has ever been replayed. 
Listen, I know this is tough. This is really tough. But ladies, you cannot fill his role. You cannot take over. See, Eve steps up here. He won't lead. He won't lead. Shoot, you know I will. I'm sure she's doing it justified. For ju- Looking at that snake like, there's a talking snake here. You going to do something about it? There's a, oh, I'll do it. What do you want? Right? A, a man doesn't step up. A woman's going to do it. She's going to step up. This gets her in trouble, doesn't it? Men, your wives need you to be strong, to be masculine, to be passionate, to be a biblical man. And that does not look like Mr. Rogers, okay? I know in our mind when we see that, that's what we think. Sweater vest? It's not what I'm saying. But ladies, men, she needs you to lead. But ladies, if he's not doing it, you're going to have to give up the right and fight the urge to step up and take over. You have got to trust God that he's in control. He's sovereign even over your husband's passivity. Pray for him. I've seen God do so many things when women finally step back and say, God, I can't change him anymore. I can't push and I'm not going to lead anymore. I'm not going to pick it up. He's not going to love the kids and lead the kids and disciple the kids. I can't just step in and fill that role. And that scares me because I'm a mother and I feel that I want my kids to be shepherded and I I don't want them to go off tracks, but God, I'm going to have to give them to you because you care for them more than I do. They were your kids before they're my kids. They were on loan to me by you. So I'm going to put them into your hands. And I've watched God. When women take their hands off it, I've watched God step in and change the heart of the man. I've watched him do it. Adam doesn't leave. Adam doesn't lead. Eve steps up. They both sin. And scripture says, their eyes were opened. And they were filled with shame. Isn't this how sin shows itself up in your life? It overpromises and underdelivers. It overpromises and underdelivers. See what's happening. God's holding out on you. God doesn't want to have you any God doesn't want you to have any fun. So you go out and you get drunk. That's going to be fun. Go do that. And then we go do that and we wake up the next morning and we're filled with shame. It overpromises, it underdelivers all the time. Promises happiness and freedom. And it delivers addiction and destruction. What's one click? What's one peek at pornography? Promises freedom, expression. You're going to be in control. And what's it deliver? It controls you. Addiction, control. What's one sip? What's ten more? It's a thing that's morally neutral. It becomes your... It's dominion over you. Becomes your slave master. Sin over promises and under delivers. So here's what we see them do. 
She took the fruit, she ate it, and then her eyes both were open. Verse 7, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is man's first attempt to rid themselves of shame on their own. It's the entrance of religion. Not the true religion that James speaks of, but moralism and man's attempt to fix their own nakedness, brokenness, and shame on their own. Listen, all religion is just fig leaves. Man goes out. He's probably looking around. What's the biggest leaf I got? Okay, he grabs his leaf. They sew them together. They're wearing them around. How long is a fig leaf loincloth going to last? Probably not very often, right? Not very long. He's going to have to go out and do it again. That's religion. There's always more for you to do. You can never quite cover your shame. You never quite feel forgiven. You never quite feel clean. You never really can get over the addiction from the past. You never can really move on and really be new because you're always working on the loincloth. That's all religion is. Man's attempt to deal with their shame, their nakedness on their own. And here immediately we see the repercussions of sin. The man and woman are separated from each other. They're feeling vulnerable. Sin caused separation from each other. It causes relational distance. And then listen to this. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. This is ironic. Adam and Eve failed to listen to God's word and now they're running from his footsteps. This, might be the, this literally might be the saddest verse in the whole Bible. Adam and Eve heard God coming. The good, right, and perfect, gracious God who had given them everything they need for life and godliness and now when they hear him coming, they're bolting. Love, joy, peace, and worship has been replaced by fear. Instead of running to him in their sin and in their shame, we screwed up, we messed up, you're gracious, they run from him in shame. We see right away that they hid themselves in the bushes. (laughs) That's just kind of funny. Adam tries to hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing God behind some bushes. It's like my two-year-old daughter who says, Daddy, you can't find me. No, babe, you just can't see me. (laughs) Men, women, where do you hide from God? I love, men are just classic. If I don't go to church and I just stay home and watch the game, I just live in my man cave, God doesn't see me. I get away from my responsibilities. No, he's there. He's all seeing. He's all knowing. You can stop coming to church. The same God rules the galaxy. You're not hiding from him. And in fact, you're just hiding from a gracious, loving father who wants to pull you in and forgive you. And God says, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Again, we should pick pick up something here. This is such a gracious response. 
like a father talking to his young children. I walked into my downstairs. I heard this weird splashing sound outside my office yesterday. I walk out of my room and there's this huge wet spot on the carpet. Look at my daughter. She's holding a bucket. (laughs) The bathroom door is open. There's a trail of water from the toilet. Zoe, what'd you do? Nothing. Oh, I just feel like that is God. Adam, where are you at? I'm in the bushes. He doesn't know. <laughs> Listen, God does not need to do this. He would be totally just in giving them no explanation whatsoever and just judging them, just obliterating them from the, from the earth. But listen to this. You've got to see this. God's plan, this drama of redemption that he's writing, it's not over here. And this is a critical scene in the drama. This is a critical scene in the whole story. God is writing this and it's not over. And yet this right here, yes, even this right here is a part of his plan. It's a part of the drama. So God humbles himself and he makes good and sure that they know just what is going on. He says, where are you? What'd you do? Who did it? He's going through the, the list, making them answer. He wants the details. Wants them to admit it. He wants them to confess it. And one thing you'll notice, who, who, who did God come looking for? said this. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Men, like it or not, you are responsible. You are responsible for the sin down under your roof. You are the responsible for finding off the enemy for your kids, for your wife for your church, for your missional community, for your fight club. Men, you are responsible. Nowhere in scripture does they ever say, you know what, Eve, the reason the world's the way it is is because of Eve, that woman. It always says the sin of Adam. Theologians say he's the federal head. He's the head of all mankind. All the sin flows through that. Adam does his best to get out of this covenant responsibility, to keep watch over his wife in the garden. He does what every good, sinful man does. He blames Eve. Then he blames God for giving him Eve. Man was the original blame shifter. It's not me. What happened was that that she did it. And you gave her to me. So you're a part of this. Then God says to Eve, Eve, so women, you don't get off. Eve says, or God says, Eve, what have you done? Now Eve, (laughs) Eve is pretty witty. All right. Eve's been reading some Joyce Meyer, so she blames the devil. All right. The serpent deceived me. That's what happened. The devil did it. See, she's, she's been to some Bible studies. She's read Beth Moore. She knows what's going on. So she just blames the devil. It's the devil. 
And God doesn't even respond to that. And then this is kind of significant. Then God approaches and addresses the serpent. And we see a juxtaposition between his demeanor. Man, where are you? What have you done? Who, who did it? Who deceived you? When he approaches Satan, he just pronounces. There's no dialogue here. Bite the dust. That's, that's, where, we get the, that's where we get that phrase from this text right here. He just looks at Satan. Bite the dust. He just pronounces his judgment upon him. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Man. And now this, we come to the proto-evangelion, the first gospel this is very significant. This is extremely interesting. I find it absolutely fascinating. I'm not going to be able to spend enough time on it, but I'm just going to drop it in here. It means the first gospel, God himself, God himself preaches the full first gospel sermon. And this is often overlooked. I want you to see a couple things here. God is speaking to a snake and who is that snake? Satan. Okay. So there's kind of, I'm not going to do a great job of explaining this, but there's kind of like a duality here. There's a Satan and there's a snake. And he's cursing them both. And what you're going to see is right here. Look at this. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Okay. So this verse has a literal and kind of like a figurative meaning as well. I want you to see this. For the most part, there is still enmity between us and snakes. Right? Very few very, you know, very rarely are you walking outside and you see one and you want to go put it in your purse. Right, ladies? Doesn't happen. Okay, there's still enmity there. They still want to bite us. We still want to stomp them. All right? That enmity is still there. But that's not the only meaning here. God is declaring. I want you to see this. From this point on in the story, there will be two lines of humanity. There will be two lines of humanity. There will be two different lines. There will be those who love God by faith that come from here, the seed of Adam. And there are those who do not love God by faith and who will reject God and who will choose to do their own thing one line gets grace and the other rejects grace. One line flows through Adam by faith. One line flows through Satan by the absence of faith. He's drawing a line in the sand. Listen to this. this is, it's going to have a lot of meaning further on as we read the story. He's saying this. There will always be people of faith and people who reject faith. Always. That's a prop. When God speaks something, it has to happen. Right? God's not a man that he should lie. I want you to hear this. This is, I don't know if I want to go there, but I'm going to have to. God is saying those who accept Jesus by faith will be counted as sons of God and those who reject him will be counted as sons of Satan. 
Jesus himself said this in John chapter 8, verse 41, when the religious people came up to Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 41 through 44. Religious people come up to Jesus, and Jesus calls them out, and Jesus says, hey, you don't know me. I'm the, I'm a, my father is God. My father is Abraham. And he says, no, 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 no. You think your father is Abraham. Your father is Satan. Because you reject grace. You reject faith. You can do all the rules, but he says your father is Satan. And God, in this scripture, he promises that there's going to be great enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of Adam, the seed of God. And you're going to watch this unfold throughout Genesis. You're going to watch brothers be born as twins. And one chooses God and one rejects God. And if you read the New Testament, it says those two One was chosen before he was born and the other was not. You're going to watch Cain and Abel. You're going to watch Joseph and his brothers. You're going to see Abraham. You're going to see this drama play out. The seed of Satan, the seed of God. Conflict. And the reason this is called the first gospel is because of the word he in verse 15. Do you see how that changes? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That he is Jesus Christ. This is the first pronouncement. You screwed it up, Adam and Eve. It's all gone bad. But he's going to fix it. One's going to come who finally, with finality, will crush the head of the serpent. That's exactly what we see in the book of Revelation where Jesus wraps up that Satan, that great serpent, and rids him. Gets the earth rid of him. Gets us rid of him. Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave. This is the pronouncement. This is Jesus written into the Bible about 4,000 years ago. At least 2,000 years, 2,500 years before Christ ever was born. So here... As I close, God is laying out the two lines of people that this whole drama is going to play out. For the rest of time, the seed of Adam, the seed of Satan, those who love God and those who don't. Now listen, in one sense, Scripture speaks that we're all born in Adam and from Adam. We're all born from this point on in the story. Every person will be born in sin. Theologians call it original sin. But what God is saying here is that he, listen to this, this is crucial. He has made sure that some people will love God. He's made sure of it. He says there will always be seed of Satan and there will be seed of Adam. He's made sure of it. He knows it's happening. He knows it's going to take place. They will believe God. They will obey God and believe this gospel. These people will be referred to as we learn in the story. We're going to really hit it with Abraham, so I can't touch it now. These people will be be referred to in Scripture as the elect. Those who believe God are referred to as the elect. Those who are not elect, they will reject God, and they will reject the gospel, And they will prove that they are of the line of Satan. Now listen, this can be a huge controversial topic. 
It's not controversial that it's in Scripture. It's not controversial if you read Romans 9 through 11, if you read Ephesians, if you read the whole thrust of Scripture, the elect, why does one guy choose God and the other doesn't? Because God has elected some. Why does Pharaoh harden his heart? And God says he did it. I can't touch the whole thing right now. And so many people go off doctrinally here. Again, it's one of those things, I don't want it to be true. So I just say it can't be true. I've heard so many people say, if the doctrine of election is true, then what's the point? Why do we even preach? Why do we share our faith? If God's going to save who he wants to save and he's going to pass over who he wants to pass over, what's the, what's the point? Listen, what you're describing is not election. What you're describing is determinism. It's a big difference. The doctrine of election gives us great confidence in sharing the gospel. Listen, if God, this is what the election says, if God is sovereign over salvation, that's the end game. If God is sovereign over salvation, he's also sovereign over the means. That means that everyone that God has elected will hear and believe the gospel. Everyone who God has elected will hear and believe the gospel. It's guaranteed. It's not a hope. This should free us, number one. Did I share my faith perfect enough? Oh my goodness. Was I good enough? Was I smart enough? Did I have the right answer? That's legalism. If everything depends on your perfect obedience, that's just too much weight to carry. See, oh my goodness. This just pumps me up, man. And it gives me great confidence and motivation in sharing the gospel. Because people always want to say, well, are they elect? Number one, that's a, just a bad question. Never ask it. Never even, if you want to think about it, you can think about it, but don't ever bring it up. This is where people go off. Are they elect? I don't know. I don't know who's elect. Share the gospel in word and deed, pray for their salvation and see how they respond. But we can't judge it on their first one because people can accept Christ at their deathbed. But that's what the Bible talks about. That's how the Bible speaks of it. God is just so gracious Romans tells us that the gospel is the very power of God for salvation, that it brings dead, elect sinners to life by sheer grace. And God in his providence, listen, God in his providence and in his sovereignty, he places those people under the preaching or inside the hearing of the gospel. Praise God. He has placed them in this room this morning. He puts them next to you at work. He puts them next to you at school. He has caused them to move in next door as your neighbors. God in his sovereign hand has been pulling people around you and placing people in your life for a specific reason. Why? So you share Jesus Christ with them. God is sovereign over salvation, yes, but he is also sovereign over the means. He wants us to spread he wants to use us to spread the gospel so every person you meet has been strategically placed there by the hand of our sovereign God. So gracious. Did you know that you're here for a purpose this morning? 
took a million different decisions and circumstances to get you here today. And God was in control of them all. Listen, this is kind of meaningless, but it's a little one I was thinking about. You're here this morning because four and a half years ago, I read Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. That's why you're here. I was caught up in the prosperity gospel. I was caught up in performing and putting on a big show and having the lights and rocking out and doing crazy stuff, having beds up on stage. and just I was caught up in that whole attractional thing. And I read one little book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And in it, I just was struck and captivated by a sovereign God. I had never read, I didn't even know what sovereign meant. I thought it just meant he was powerful. I was confronted with a sovereign God who was more concerned about his own glory than furthering my five-year plan. That book caused me to see God in a clearer light and to see my purpose in life. It led me to leave the church that I was a part of and a couple years later start Sacred City. I would not have read that book at that time in my life, I would still be putting on a huge attractional show and this church would not exist. That's one. There was a million circumstances that got you. Who told you? How'd you hear about it? Did you hear an Acts 29 sermon? Did, did, you, did a friend tell you? God is sovereign over all things. He got you here for a purpose this morning. And not only does God's sovereign grace give me the confidence and boldness in sharing the gospel, this is the biggest. It gives me incomparable joy. Not only does it give me confidence, it gives me great joy to know that I'm not, a left, on, I'm not left alone on my own to find God. But instead, He has come after me. He has chosen me to bring me from death to life. Not based on my works, but on his own, but on his grace. On his grace. That means my salvation and your salvation, listen, was bought, was paid for, and delivered by God, for God, for his glory, and for our joy. I love God. Can you say that? I love God because he first loved me. We're not giving you sacred city. We're not offering you a religion to come please God. And I always say dance for your dinner. Do these things and God will be happy with you and give you everything you ever wanted. Come. He's calling you. He's drawing you. You're here for a reason. He's taken into account your sin. You are a great sinner. Admit it. You're great at it. But he's even a greater savior. Only this can free you from the shackles of religion. Only this can free you from the shackles of your own sin. Only the gracious, one-way love of God. Father, You are outstanding. 
we try to cover ourselves with fig leaves. And later in the story, in this chapter even that we read and I can't get to, you graciously cover them. You kill the first animal and you cover them and it says you make garments for them. Not measly fig leaves that our own works can achieve. You make garments. You make a robe fitting for them. You cover them with your sacrifice. And you send them out in your gracious care. You have done that for us. In your son, you've made the greatest sacrifice. You killed him. He willingly gave up his life. And now you clothe us in his righteousness. You clothe us in his right standing. You adopt us into the family of God. You don't just call us forgiven sinners. You call us sons and daughters. Oh, how great is this gracious God. And Father, as we take part in communion and as we receive the body and the blood of Christ and it comes inside of us, let us remember that you not only adopted us as sons, but you come inside of us and you dwell in us greatest joy, Christ in us. I pray that you communicate to us your goodness and your grace this morning. And those who have been far from you and who have wandered from you, I pray they hear your sovereign call today and they respond and they turn from their sin and they embrace you by faith. Give them grace this morning, almighty, merciful, powerful God. In Jesus' name, amen.